Hey, thanks for tuning in to Acts 23, a verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts. This week, we'll hear a message from Pastor Andy Bowles. So, so with your mind, and if it's good for you to close your eyes to be able to concentrate a little bit better, feel free to go ahead and do that. You're in a safe place. Nobody's going to get you but the Holy Spirit, and we want him to get you. So that's okay, right? So, so just, just, just for a moment, I want you to think. You're in a public place. There's a lot of things that's happening. Uh, busyness is all around, but you're kind of doing your thing. And then all of a sudden, something stupendous, spectacular, amazing, once in a lifetime kind of chance for you to be around this situation has happened. I mean, you cannot believe your eyes that this has happened. And then all of a sudden, Something inside of you wails up and there's words that are there to say something and you're ready to speak that because of the experience that you just had. I mean, you just experienced something once in a lifetime, blows your mind, you can't believe your eyes, absolutely stupendous. What are you going to say? What do you say next? (laughs) All of a sudden, right now, you've got the platform in which you can say something to those around you that might help them make sense of something that you've seen and experienced together. How important are those next words after something So life-changing, stupendous, mind-blowing, can't believe my eyes. How important is that? Have you ever been in a situation to where something happened a -a once-in-a-lifetime moment and then you had a conversation with somebody beside you? It can be a positive thing or it can be a negative thing. To kind of put the negative spin on it real quick, I remember when I heard the World Trade Centers were hit with airplanes. Of course, at first, it was like a hit in the gut. Don't know what to say. And then I knew what to say. I can't believe this is happening. In our passage last week, Acts chapter 3, if you got your Bibles, you can begin to turn there. We saw that Peter and John, they're going to the temple, the, the, the time of prayer, and, and they're just kind of minding their own business. They're doing their thing. They're keeping that Acts 2.42 passage to where they prayed together. And, and so they're on their way to the, to the temple to pray, and they pass this guy who's at a certain gate who's lame, and he's been lame for a long time. People know this guy as a beggar. He's flagging outside of Walmart a lot. And so they, they, they see this guy, and this guy sees them and, and he reaches out to them and he, he fixes his eyes on them and is, is asking them for benevolence, for alms, for any kind of charity that they can give to him. And, and, and they look at him and they say, and Peter says, Silver and gold have we none, but what we do have we give to you in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. And and the scripture teaches us that he did not just rise up and walk, but this man stood and he walked and he leaped and he praised God for the miraculous healing that had been done in his body. What literally happened in that moment was a stupendous, spectacular, amazing, mind-blowing thing can't, can't believe my eyes what is happening. 
Now, for those two guys, Peter and John, they experienced it for three and a half years as they were following Jesus. But there were a lot of people in the crowd that it was their first time to see anything that amazing. And so what was, what was the words that needed to be spoken next? Last week we talked about the miracle and this week we're going to talk about the message that is after the miracle. I want you to understand this. Most every time in the scriptures, especially in the gospels, when Jesus would heal someone miraculously, there was a message to follow because miracles are a platform from which a message is to be proclaimed. Few times Jesus would heal somebody and say, don't go tell anybody, but it wasn't that the, there was not a message in it. There was still a message in it, but the crowd was limited to the message. There was still a message. There was a message to his close followers, his disciples who were in that crowd for that person in their healing. The, the, the miracle of Jesus walking on the water is for the 12 that are in the boat. Oh, ye of little faith. There is a message that always accompanies a miracle. How many of you guys believe that God is a God of miracles? Amen, absolutely. God is a God of miracles and God is performing miracles all the time. We talked last week about the extremes of how we see miracles. It can be just the miracle of me waking up today and having breath and life. Or we go to the extreme side of that and say miracles are only when people are resurrected from the dead and things like that. And God, because God is not limited by your theology, God is not defined by what you think he can and cannot do. God is God and he can do anything he wants at any time he desires to do it. And I believe that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the same God who used prophets in the Old Testament and God in flesh Jesus in the Gospels and used these apostles in that day, the very God who worked through these yielded lives to perform miraculous things can do the same today with us or even beside us, uh, without us. He can do miraculous things. But never forget that behind every miracle is a message. Put this into context now. We're, we're, not, isolate, we're not eisegesis, right? We're, 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 we're putting all this in a context. If, if we believe that God is the God who performs miracles every single day and he gives me a heartbeat, therefore that is a miracle. He helped me wake up this morning and live my life. I'm functioning every day. That is a, that is a miracle. Then there has to be a message preached from the platform of that miracle. Just the same as though we've seen people prayed for and healed at our church, there is a message proclaimed from that miracle. <laughs> because there's always a message after the miracle. Because Jesus is the kind of God who doesn't waste any opportunity. I don't know if you're like me, but man, sometimes I can kind of, at the end of the day, review my day, or at the end of the week, or end of a situation, review it in my mind. I'm just one of those guys that when I lay my head on the pillow, man, I am processing everything that happened in the day, especially if I have one of those too busy to think too much days. 
How many of you guys have some of those days? Man, it's just so busy, it's hard to process in the moment. And I lay my head down on the pillow and I think through everything and I think about sometimes reviewing my day, thinking about what happened and I say to myself, oh man, you missed that opportunity. It was right there in front of you and you blew it. You were too busy, you were too distracted. You, you, you wasn't on, on the right thinking pathway that you should have been on to catch that. Now you've caught it, now it's too late, and opportunities is like milk, right? <laughs> if you don't use it, it'll sour, right? It'll slip away real quick. And Jesus was one who seized opportunity. He taught his followers to seize opportunity. Not a miracle wasted without the accompaniment of a message. And so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to read verses 11 through verse 26 in Acts chapter 3. We're going to go through this as we have been doing and we'll continue the rest of the year reading through these verses and then kind of go back in as much as time as what we have to, to do this. We'll get as much of these verses under our belt and understanding for preparations and context for verses to come. But verse 11 says, And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And, and you would as well. You know somebody who has a desperate need. They're, they're, they're sick. They, they need a healing and they're healed and you experience that at, at the very least at a distance, obviously. Not just that, but how many of you guys remember the sixth grade? I mean, some of you guys may be in the sixth grade. It's amazing what catches a crowd, right? Never forget, there's a lot of times I was in the sixth grade, I was over at the water fountain waiting my turn to get some water, and somebody said, fight! Well, it's a terrible, terrible illustration. But how it got a crowd. Everybody wants to run out and see the fight. This, this, Believe it or not, this was a fight. Just a different kind of fight than what you and I are thinking about. <laughs> there is a spiritual battle that was happening in the midst of every bit of this. This man is bound in his physical body in which now at this moment through the power of Christ, he's healed and freed from that. But that is a momentary, temporary kind of thing. He one day, like Lazarus, will go through the experience of laying his body down and he will die and live no longer physically on this planet. But there is on the back side of all of this something greater being fought for. Not just his eternity, but everybody else's eternity. And so, so verse 11, this, this crazy thing happened and all of these people are now running to them, to the porch in verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people and said, I'm going to take advantage of this. You, you know Peter's a preacher by now, right? He's like, crowd? I was talking to somebody just the other day about a large crowd at a certain event to where there were about 2,500 seats available in this certain venue. And we were talking about some of the things that happened at this certain event and some things that were kind of newsworthy things that happened. And, 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 and as I'm listening to the conversation, I'm also thinking in the back of my mind, 2,500 people. Now this is a concert that we're talking about. But I thought to myself, 
It's just a preacher in me. God give me 2,500 people to preach to in one sitting. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, it's something that, you know, preachers going to lick their lips and they're going to be like, yeah, chomping at the bit. I, I want that. And so when this happens, all of a sudden the crowd comes. Before this event, it's just Peter and, and John and they're just going to pray. But God provides opportunity after opportunity. And now this man is healed and he is walking, leaping and praising God. Everybody is atten attention is on them now. And, and then Peter says, all right, what's up? And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? And why look ye so earnestly upon us as though by our own power or holiness we made this man to walk? He gives prop where props due in verse 13. And he says, The, the God of Abraham and, and Isaac and of Jacob the God of our fathers hath glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied him, it, it denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, wherefore we are all witnesses. This is not something that was a secret. Everybody has heard about this very situation he's preaching about. Verse 16, and his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong, whom you see and know, yea, the faith which is by him hath, hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I walked. This is a King James Version word. It just means I know that you did this through ignorance as did your rulers. But those things which God before has showed by the mouth of all of his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Listen to this next part. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus Christ, which was before preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive unto the time of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he says unto you. He shall say unto you, and it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after as many as have spoken have likewise foretold thee of these days. In other words, they were speaking of this moment today, what's been happening. He says, you are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God had made with our father, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in the turning away of 
every one of you from his iniquities. I, I'm telling you, and, and, and of course, you, you guys do remember that in the original language, there is not chapter nor verses. And, and so a lot of these chapters and verses just kind of flow from one to the next, although certain passages may be separated by some years. But Peter, after this miracle takes place, immediately seizes the opportunity of this crowd to be able to preach this message to them. He talks to them first about the source of the miracle. In verses 12 and 16, I love what he says here. He says, why are you guys running up to us, looking at us as though some, some power or holiness of us is what did this? And then in verse 16, he says, this man has been made strong. In other words, he has been healed because of faith in that name, that name being the name of Jesus. They were very much aware of who did what in the moment of that man's healing. They were very much aware, Peter and, and, and John, uh, of making sure that they were made little of while Jesus was being made much of. They remembered the words of Jesus in John chapter 12, verse 32, when Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. It was the intent of their heart. They weren't looking for any credit for themselves. They weren't looking for any lucrative deals to come out of this. They were simply being obedient and they were simply being reminded to do exactly what Jesus had told and told them to do and they would do greater things than this. And so here they are now just being, being obedient. Being obedient. Giving what they have willing to serve in what way they can serve. Never overlook the power of humility in the heart of the obedient. <laughs> that's who they are. That's, that's what they're doing. But, but then we see that they, they give this Jewish message in verse 13. He says, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob and the God of our fathers. Understand, remember Jesus, whenever he's in the Gospels, he's preaching first to the Jews. Now, the message ultimately gets to the Gentile, and I'm very thankful that it does. Because y'all looking at one, a Gentile that is. To be defined as a Jew means that my mother has to be 100% pure Jew. I, 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 my mom's not. She, you've seen my mom. She's very not Jew. As a matter of fact, her, her grandparents were Hirschenhans, so more of a German descent. And, and so Jesus wasn't trying to keep something good away from the Gentile, but he was coming first unto the Jew. And the message that he would give to his disciples were the same. You go and preach this first to the house of Israel, to my people, to the Jewish people, because it was God's desire for the lineage in which he was birthed into the world through would get an opportunity to receive we know later that Paul, whenever he's writing to the church at Rome, says in chapter 9, 10, and 11, there's the compact chapter statements about how he wished that Israel, even if it meant for the blotting out of his own name, out of the book of remembrance for God, that God's people would be saved. But they were, in large part, rejectors of the gospel. But nonetheless, it's unto the Jew first, then also 
it is to the Gentile or the Greek. And so he's preaching and he reminds these Jewish minds, not just that, but, but remember where Peter is. Not just is it for the Jew first, but Peter understands his context in preaching his message. He is in Jerusalem. There's going to be a lot of people out there. It's a melting pot of culture, and, and it's the emerging of the world very much like it was in Rome. There's going to be a lot of people there of diverse ethnicities, but he's in the temple. He's going to the temple. You see, Judaism is not just a religion, it is a nationality. It's not just a nationality or ethnicity, it is a religion. And so now he, he knows his context. He, he wants to, to get their attention by saying, hey, we all on the same page. We all have got the, the same identity. But then he breaks a bubble next by saying, that this God who is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of, and of Jacob and our fathers, he's glorified his son, Jesus. He's glorified Jesus. Why is this important to the Jew? Because it was the Jewish concerted effort to bring Jesus of Nazareth before a council and he would be tried unjustly. He would be accused of blasphemy from which he is innocent of. He would be crucified. He would be buried. And he would be raised from the dead. He was on the cross. And his very own is walking in front of him. Mocking and ridiculing. And throwing word darts at him. He's, he's with Pilate and, 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 and there's, there's a murderer and, and, a, and, a, and an insurrectionist on the other side of the stage and, and the crowd has been given the option to choose one or the other to be crucified and Pilate has already made his voice known. Jesus seems to be innocent, but Barabbas not so much. Who do you want? It's the very voice of his own people. Isaiah chapter 53, who, who will believe our report? His own people didn't. And what do they do? They cry out, crucify him. Crucify him. The very God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of your fathers has glorified his son, Jesus. But then he says this next in verse 13, whom you have delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. And then there was the personal responsibility that Peter placed on the people. Years ago, you guys might remember, some of you guys might remember when um, the, the movie came out, Mel Gibson did The Passion of the Christ. You guys remember, I was pastoring at a church. We decided to, to go. Our, our, our group of churches bought out the, 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 the pre-showing of the movie, and we got in there, and we were, we were watching the, the movie and came out. Man, I, I took a notebook in there and my Bible and my glasses, and I'm ready, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write down everything that's wrong in that movie. No, I didn't. 
It's too quick. I was already weeping right in the first few scenes. You know, I'm like, good night, Jesus, forgive me. Where's an altar? I need to repent. Help me, Lord. You know, but, but a conversation ensued after the movie was released to the public, and it was this question, who crucified Jesus? Who crucified Jesus? There's a lot of different ways that, that you can go after that. There's a lot of different ways that, that you can think through that, right? Who, who, who did cruise? Well, Pilate had the authority. He could have said, no, no, we're going to just go ahead and crucify this guy. We're going to let Jesus go. He had the authority. He was pressured. You say, well, it was... It was the religious leaders of that day. It was the Sanhedrin. It was the, 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 the Pharisees that were in that group. It was those who were crying, crucify him. Cruc I, think, I think over the years I've heard an answer to all this. If, if, we, if we want to say it this way, maybe it was me and you, right? The reason that he was crucified. This is, this is what I love about this. And, and let me just say this real quick. At this point, a sermon becomes a message. I want you to understand that. At this point in this passage, a sermon becomes a message. You say, Andy, what do you mean? And I'm going to get a little geeky on pre preacher on stage kind of stuff. And some of you guys might, I don't want you to get gloss eyed over this, but, but, but there, I've been doing this for almost 30 years. And I know when I get up and, and I give a sermon. And a lot of times I know who's getting a sermon. And then there's other times to where I know where I, I'm giving a message and I see who's getting a message. A sermon, man, you can, you can YouTube and get a sermon, right? And, and by chance, sometimes there's a message that you can, you can get from that. There, there is a plethora of, of sermons that are out there. What, what, what makes a sermon become a message? The, the, the first thought there that was on the board is, is that all of a sudden what has been spoken becomes personal. It is it is part. Hey, listen, guys, I can listen to you preach a sermon all day about them. Y'all feel me? You know, how many times you've been sitting there or listening to a sermon and you're thinking, man, this would be good if so and so could hear it? <laughs> Boy, they need this one. Is this on Spotify? I'm just going to text it to them, and when they get it, I'm going to say, oops, I didn't mean to send that to you. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> this ain't like that. This ain't one of those, those, it's a sermon if I'm thinking, boy, this is good for them. It's a sermon if I'm thinking, when's he going to get through? It's a sermon if I'm thinking, that's application for somebody else. It's a sermon if I've got it in neutral while I'm here. It's a message if something is said that becomes personal to me and now I know it's something that I need to carry out of this room, that's a message. How does it become a, a, a message? It's, it's personal, but when does it become personal? Well, when you look through this passage of Scripture, you'll look in verses 12, 13, 14, and 15, seven personalized statements that made the audience think through what what. 
Peter was saying. Seven different personalized statements. He said, ye, he said, you, he said, whom, he's, he's directing things to them. He's not trying to be, 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 be one who avoids the fact. Let me tell you something, guys. You know the preacher loves you when the preacher confronts you. Peter's up there because of love. He says so later in his letters. It is displayed through him in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. He is doing all of this because of love. He loves the people. And so what does he do? He doesn't preach about somebody that ain't there. He's not preaching to somebody that ain't there. And the Holy Spirit oftentimes seems to take this sermon and personalize it and bring a message. Because it's to you. It's preaching in itself anyway is a unique thing. <laughs> it's a very unique thing. God has chosen this foolish thing of proclamation to bring about the news of the cross and the word of God unto his people. <laughs> he says this is this is the way I want to do it. Preaching is to herald and to proclaim. And the Spirit of the Lord takes what is personal and it embeds in, in our hearts. Look at these. Just run through these verses real quick. And Peter saw it. He answered the people and said, Ye, men of Israel, while marvel ye, at this, or why look ye so steadfastly on us as though by our own power, holiness, we made this man to walk. The God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, had glorified Jesus, whom ye have delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just one and desired a murder to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised up from the dead. Wherefore, we are all witnesses. He's, he's making this such a a personal thing. I'm here to tell you that when the word of God is being proclaimed, if you make it anything other than personal, then it's going to be little to no effect for you. Had a preacher a long time ago sit me down, and he said, what did you get out of that message? This is what I did. I said, well... The preacher was kind of monotone, and he was a little bit boring, and he stayed behind the lectern, and I was a little bit tired, and I just didn't get a whole lot out of that. It wasn't, I remember saying this, it just wasn't my style. That's what I said to this guy. And he is a preacher that loved me. And he took about five minutes and showed me how much he loved me. And he told me, he said, you know what, the, the style means Nothing monotone in one place you can say boring understand that when that person stands to proclaim the truth he stands to proclaim the truth on the behalf of God and he has a message from God for you through the whole thing you should be asking yourself the question how can I take this truth and change my life by what is being preached see, a message becomes a message because 
It becomes personal. A, a, a message, a sermon becomes a message when, when the message is all about Jesus. There was a preacher a long time ago, Charles Spurgeon. Some of you guys might have heard him, 1800s. He gave this illustration, and he talked about a message making sure that it had the certain ingredients or elements necessary to make it a message worth listening to. And he likened the story like this. He said, just as a baker would use the right ingredients to bake a loaf of bread, so the preacher must always include the greater elements of his message to make sure he's proclaiming a message of God, and that is Jesus and his gospel. Jesus and his gospel. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this. Who set you free? Who saved you? Jesus, right? So it's, it's, sometimes I hear people, and I know they have good intentions, but, but they say, so-and-so, yeah, he saved me. Talking about a preacher, somebody that shared the gospel with him. R.G. Lee, who was a preacher up in Memphis, he, he was coming out of a, a meeting late one night from his church, and he's fumbling around to get to his keys, and a guy staggeredly drunk came up to him at his car, and he looked at him and he said, hey, preacher, you saved me. And he looked at him and said, you look like something I'd save. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not about us. It's not us that does these things. It's us that are used to do these things, but, but it's the power of Christ in and through. It is not by our name, but it is his name. Look back at verse 16. And his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong. See, it's, it's his name here in just a, a chapter. And just, as a matter of fact, next Wednesday, it's going to be encapsulated in the verses that we speak through next Wednesday to where the scripture is going to say, one of these guys are going to be proclaiming truth again, and, and they're going to say, there's only one name in heaven that men can be saved by. He didn't say it's Simon Peter, son of Barjona. He didn't say it's John the Beloved. He said it's Jesus. Understand that there is power in that name. There is power in that name to cause defeat to our enemy. There is power in that name to cause freedom for you. There is power in that name for the one who is furthest away to be brought close. There's power in the name of Jesus, and it's only because of Jesus. So the miracle happens, and now the message is more than a sermon because it's hitting the target. It's being made personal. It's about Jesus, fresh on their hearts and minds, the one who was recently crucified, buried, and resurrected from the dead. But the message also, it calls for a response. It's something you guys have heard me say so many times, if you've been here for eight years, you've been hearing me say this stuff throughout eight years. When this, when this time begins, then your opportunity to respond begins. If you, if you need to pray at where you're sitting, if you need to get somebody to pray with you, if, if you need to come down to this stage area, it doesn't matter. That moment, it, it, is, it is ready. And, and the same thing goes with the proclamation, with the preaching, with the message. 
it, it calls for a response because God is talking, <laughs> because God is not, not the preacher on stage. It's, it's another thing that we've said so many times, right? If, if my voice is the only voice you hear tonight, you have missed it. You better hear another voice tonight. You got to hear a louder voice than mine. You got to hear a voice that's speaking directly to your need. And when that voice speaks, then you respond. You say, well, wait a minute, Andy. There is an invitation time that is given, right? And so whenever everybody gets up and begins to sing, then that's my cue. I need to go and respond. Our culture of Christianity has conditioned us to respond during that time. But in my understanding of the scripture, you go back to Acts chapter 2, before Peter was even done preaching, they said, hey, Peter, what do we have to do to be saved? The response came when they heard, not man, but when they heard from God. You hear from God, you respond. You see, it has a call to respond, this message from God. And so that's what happened in verse 19. There was a call. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. There's three powerful words in that statement. He said, repent. I want to remind you that repentance is not a one-time action that you do and it's over. It's not even just something that you will do periodically through your, throughout your life. It's James McDonald once said it this way, it's not a place that you visit, but it's a place that you live in. Repentance is a place that you live in. I am daily living in the place of godly brokenness and repentance over my sin, what keeps me fresh in knowing what God wants for me is that every single day, it is my desire to in this perfect verb, it's English class, and I am the worst one to be teaching English, Glenn. I ain't know nothing what I'm talking about with English. But it's a perfect verb in the original language to, to be to be repenting and to continue to repent. It is, it is ongoing. <laughs> repent. And then the next powerful word there is, is converted. I want to make sure that, that there is change that is happening in my life. I'm going from one state to another state. You see, that's what God is doing tonight with this message, just like he does every message you hear. He's saying, all right, I'm offering you change. How are you going to change? Is it ho-hum, business as usual, I heard a sermon, or is it a message that is saying, okay, here, respond. Respond. Some of you might have heard earlier, more than just with the ear of the head, but the ear of the heart, that thought about humility and obedience being a powerful thing that creates great opportunities for God's servants. You might have heard that. 
You might have heard repent. Maybe you're in that place to where you thought repentance. I did that. It's kind of like the, the guy got married. He's standing in, in front of the, the, the preacher in the crowd. And, and you know, he, he got married. They've been married for 10, 15, 20 years. And, and the wife, they get into a fuss and a fight. And, 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 the, and the husband uh, is, is fussing at the wife. And the wife says, well, the reason that I'm so ill all the time is because you never tell me you love me. And he looks at her and says, yeah, I told you on the day we got married, and if anything changed, I'd let you know. <laughs> you know some of us kind of treat repentance like that in our salvation. Well, I repented, and that's, that's it. No, you, it's, I'm, I'm continually, because if you'll notice the progression of these three powerful words in this verse, each one seems to be conditional with the, ne in the next. Repent. How do I be converted? Change, because I have repented. Repentance is, is a change. It's a turnaround. And now I am converted. I am changing. When the times of refreshing shall come, you say, Andy, I'm just so stale. Let me to tell you why you stale spiritually. It's because you ain't repenting. And because you ain't repenting, you ain't being converted. You're not converting. You're not changing. And, and because you're not changing, you're staying the same. And you kind of like a gallon of milk too. Right? So the message is calling for a response. But, but then the last thought is this. To go from a sermon to a message means that it has a, a place to hear hope. Hear of hope. <laughs> this is the great thing that we get to do because of when we live, not just where we live. <laughs> if I am Ezekiel and I am preaching to Judah, I'm going to have a lot of weight of judgment to come because y'all are a bunch of knuckleheads. Jeremiah, Isaiah, all those Old Testament prophets. Not saying that they didn't have any hope to speak of, but I'm talking about 95% judgment, 5% hope. We on this side of the cross, this is the great thing about our proclamation, that it has to be personal. <laughs> it, it has to be about Jesus. It has to have a call to respond, but it gets to be a place to where you get to hear about hope. I don't know about you, but, but life can be pretty discouraging. And I'm not talking about life out there. I'm talking about life in my mirror. Can get kind of discouraging. And what I need to hear, what I need the message to be completed by is hope. <laughs> there was a story years ago about a, about a town that had been contaminated by radioactive, uh, radioactive material. <clears throat> nice little quiet town, 10,000 people, pretty little gated communities and homes and white picket fences were now told you have to evacuate. This place is contaminated. You've got six months to get all of your stuff together and leave. The news came. They lost hope in their little community. They began to let the grass grow and the paint flake. The shrubs outgrew 
the shutters began to fall off the doors. The mailboxes weren't open anymore because they had lost hope. When we lose hope, things get really shaggy in our life, doesn't it? The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that hope deferred makes the heart sick. That's, that's, a, that's a proverb. This is, this is what I love to do with proverbs like that. I like to take them, turn them inside out, and I like to think of it like this. If hope deferred makes the heart sick, then hope received makes my heart leap with joy. Oh, hallelujah, how I like hope. Things may get pretty difficult, and life may be kind of discouraging, but I know that I have a blessed hope in Jesus and I know that he's promised to me that he is coming again and every promise in him is yes and amen. That verse 25 and 26, this is the way he concludes this. Ye are the children of the prophets. Notice this, and of the covenant of God. God has made this covenant with our fathers. You are, you are children of a covenant. That, that wording doesn't hit home with us like I guess it would them. Because we don't think of covenants in our culture. We think of contracts in our culture. Contracts is when two parties agree over certain conditions with loopholes in those conditions that if one party or the other doesn't meet the required statements in that contract, there's a loophole that can get me out if you don't do what you're supposed to do. But a covenant... A covenant's different than a contract. A covenant brings us into an, an agreement with God. God is a covenant-making God. There's several covenants that God made, one through creation, one with Adam, one with Noah, <clears throat> one with Abraham, one with Moses, one with David, one through Jesus, one in salvation, one for the church. There's covenants littered all throughout the scripture. God is a covenant-making God. And when God says, you are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, what he's saying is, although our fathers have died and been placed in the graves, God has not forgot about you. So even though you might feel like it's never going to happen, you, because of... The, the blurred vision of your faith can't see that it's going to happen. <laughs> Have hope in this fact that it's going to happen because God is going to keep his covenant. <laughs> he says next, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you. God sent Jesus to bless you. There's hope. You say, me? Messed up little old me? Jesus, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the one who had come to, in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Man, I tell you what, if you know me for any length of time, you know that I am not the brightest light bulb in the closet. I can make a mistake real quick. 
I can blow it in a heartbeat. I know what sin is. I've been there, done that, and the problem is I know that I'm probably going to do it again. And for me, that can be so discouraging, but the message that I'm hearing from Peter, the message that I'm hearing from God, the message that God's Word is teaching me is even though there might be chance for sin in the future, because I have hope in Jesus, I know that he has come to bless me and to turn me away from my iniquity, my sin. That is a promise because that is the character of God. <laughs> Even though he knows the nature of man, he's made such a strong promise. Why? To give you hope. To give you hope. Has the idea, the imagery. There's that 16-year-old girl. She went on her date with her boyfriend. At the conclusion of the date, she comes home and he said something like this. It's not you, it's me. What a lie. And now she rushes off to her bedroom and she covers her head in her pillow and she's weeping. She's hurt. And mom comes in and takes away the pillow and begins to brush her hair. And she says something like this. There's more fish in the sea. <laughs> Even though he knows I have iniquity that I need to turn away from. He is one to come and bless me and say, Andy, here's hope. Here's hope. You're going to get it eventually. Here's hope. Aren't you glad we got hope? If you would bow your heads with me for just a moment. Father, I'm asking tonight that you would prove, not that you have to, but I'm asking because of mercy and grace, your hope to us once again. God, I believe that you are a miraculous God. There's nothing outside of your power. But Lord, I don't want to become so mesmerized by the miracle that I forget to perk my ears up to the message. Because just like I need that miracle, Lord, I need that message. So Lord, with this tonight and every other time, let it be personal. Let it be about you, Jesus. Call me to change, Lord. I need it, I need it, I need it. And God, because you're a good God, and when I change and I don't change, then I change, remind me that there's hope with you. I love you, Lord, and I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.